From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. I'm Bill Nygut. Today, the state election board has beaten back efforts by MAGA activists who pressured the board to launch an investigation of Brad Raffensperger's handling of the 2020 election. The board split evenly on the question, and it could come back. We'll talk to one member, Edward Lindsay. I'm Greg Bluestein. Judge Steve Jones said at a hearing yesterday he'll soon determine if Georgia's new legislative and congressional maps comply with his order to give black voters additional power to elect candidates of their choice. But the hearing began with an unexpected wrinkle. Plus, when is a Republican not a Republican? When the leaders of GOP committees in two Georgia counties decide some candidates don't pass the Republican purity test. We'll explain. Joining our conversation today is longtime WABE host Rose Scott. We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. I'm Bill Nygut, joined here in the studio by my colleague Greg Bluestein and also WABE's legendary Rose Scott, host of Closer Look Weekdays at 1 p.m. here on WABE. Rose, you and I have, you know, sort of paid attention to each other's careers for a very long time, and I cannot tell you how glad I am we're now on the same radio station and how great it is to have you on Politically Georgia today. Thanks for being here. Not a problem. Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate yep. it. There's a lot to talk about uh, with you. We're also joined in the studio by one of my very favorite Bluesteins. There are some good Bluesteins, but they're none of them quite like Brooke Bluestein, who is here with her dad, Greg, today. Uh, Greg, you want to introduce your daughter and give her a chance to say a few words? You know, Bill, I think Brooke wrote us a special song that she wants to sing this morning. I did. <laughs> Patricia, Tia, Bill, and Greg, they put together a show that's meant to be led by Shaney, B, and Natalie, politically judging for you and for me. Wow. I, that's pretty good. She's better than half the rappers that are out there right now. I'll tell you what, the AJC marketing department, I hope, will take a look at that song. We have a new we have a new intro, Bill. <laughs> All right, look, we have a lot to talk about today, and we are joined by another one of our favorites on this show, Edward Lindsay, former state representative, leader in the state house as a Republican during his time there, now a partner at Denton's, where he oversees their Georgia uh uh uh, legal, how do we say that, Ed? What's the proper uh, description? Public policy. Public team. policy. Uh, thank you, Edward, for being here today. It's a pleasure to have you. All right, so Thanks. let's get started on a story that involves Edward Lindsay, Greg Bluestein. The state election board the other day, Edward is a member of that board, uh, had a meeting, a public meeting, which was packed with a, what appears to have been a pretty boisterous crowd who were pressuring the board into investigating 
Secretary of State Raffensperger's handling of the manual ballot count of the 2020 election. Start us off there and tell us what happened. Yeah, the meeting went on for hours, and uh, there were a number of Republican activists and election skeptics, we'll call them, who were pushing for a formal investigation for the, for the state election board to launch a formal investigation into how Brad Raffensperger handled uh, the 2020 vote. And there's been a number of these claims that have been rejected uh, over the years about election fraud and, you know, all the widespread, uh, the lies about widespread election fraud. Um, but I think this one was unique. There was a lot of um, heads, <laughs> eyes that, uh, that turned in the Capitol. Uh, there was a lot of surprise in the Capitol because usually there's, there's an appointee for the board from the Georgia Republican Party who usually votes um, for these sort of initiatives. But in this case, it deadlocked 2-2, so it did not pass. But, but um, Representative Lindsey was, uh, is the other member, Republican member of the state election board. He was appointed by the Georgia House. And uh, you voted, uh, sir, uh, Representative, to, uh, to launch this investigation. We wanted to give you a chance to talk about yeah. why you voted. Well, first off, launch the investigation, quite frankly, I think sort of sets, it isn't quite accurate, if, if y'all can allow me to sure. a second, sort of explain, because uh, it sort of implies that it's the first time we've ever, well, two things. Number one, the, the state election board doesn't launch investigations. State election board adjudicates complaints brought by people uh, and sort of takes a look at their merits. That's number one. And that's a difference, subtle difference, but an important difference because launching investigation carries with it some type of of animation that 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 we think there's something nefarious has happened. Uh, instead, what we're saying is that somebody else thinks something nefarious has happened, and we believe that we have the jurisdiction to decide whether or not something really happened or not. So, so it's it's it, it's it's a I think an important difference in, in there. Number two is that it. That it also sort of it sort of struck people because they think that this is the first time that we've actually taken a look at this issue. We've been dealing with this issue and numerous other claims regarding the 2020 election for over two years, dozens of cases. In all those other cases, uh, it's it's a county it's a county or a county official or some lo- some yeah, county election worker who's had to bear the brunt of defending uh, the 2020 elections. Uh, what we have contended, what some some of us have contended, and we've been looking at this for over a year, is that since we already have jurisdiction over 159 county election boards and their supervisors, uh, uh, hundreds of part-time and full-time election workers, and, and thousands of uh, uh, candidates around the state, we ought to also have jurisdiction uh regarding the state election board, rather the the state secretary of state's election division to quite frankly move these cases along more efficiently more quickly and if there is something involved in the secretary of state's office also deal with that while we deal with all these others edward let me give rose a chance to jump in so anyway it's a rather arcane your legal jurisdictional issue that doesn't necessarily imply that we think anything has gone wrong by the secretary of state's office it's simply gives us the authority to take up to, to basically dispose of those claims while we're disposing of all the others. Rose, jump in. Uh, Representative Lindsay, first of all, it's good to talk to you. Been a minute. Uh, yeah. A uh, quick question, though. If there has already been legal rulings or legal clarification or legal validation that nothing happened, which we know that's what's happened, is it a waste of y'all's time to even take it up? 
Yeah, you, well, have, the, you, have, mind, the, you have the authority to do it, but do you really take, think you're going to come up with something that the higher courts couldn't reveal? You know, take it up. Take it up sometimes implies simply by the simply involves us going ahead and accepting jurisdiction and saying there's not, nothing else here to, for us to take a look at. But the problem is that we can't we the secretary of state has taken the position that we don't have the authority to even say, secretary of state, you've done nothing wrong. Or Secretary of State, maybe you did something technically wrong. You know, here is something that you need to sort of tweak in terms of your process, but we don't necessarily think it changes the outcome of the election. Keep in mind that every election, there's always some type of irregularity taking place. Some and and either some and usually it's some type of misfeasance rather than malfeasance, but occasional malfeasance, even occasional small levels of fraud. But we've never in two years of taking a look at these, we haven't come up with anything. We haven't had any evidence, quite frankly, that any kind of conduct changed the 2020 election. But that, but a lot of what we do deal with, Rose, is quite frankly, trying to tweak what take, took place before to make sure that the next election is even better than the last one. Do well, y'all take up voter intimidation? If, yeah. Hmm. Okay. We've had that. If someone files a complaint, we, we had, we, we took that up. In uh, in a case involving a matter down in Albany uh, last summer, as a matter of fact. But so, yeah, if someone files a complaint regarding voter intimidation by one person or entity against another, yeah, we that's something that folks can file a complaint and we'll hear it. So, Edward, um, I, I think a couple of things that I think about as I hear you talk. Number one, it's interesting to hear you say that the Secretary of State's office takes the position that the uh, board doesn't have any authority to oversee the activity of the Secretary of State. We ought to keep in mind that the legislature actually removed the Secretary of State from the election board two sessions ago and uh, and so separated uh, you from uh, his office entirely in an official capacity. But, but let me talk about something I think is a bit more personal. You are hardly, and you've been coming on our show for a very long time, you are hardly what anyone call, would call a MAGA Republican. And so I think there are any number of people out there, numbers of whom contacted me to say, why is Edward Lindsay, of all people, supporting an effort to investigate uh, how the Secretary of State's office handled an election three years old? And at what point do you say enough is enough? Well, like I said, one thing I think that that some folks don't don't they maybe don't grasp is that not having the Secretary of State, not having jurisdiction of the Secretary of State does not stop these claims from coming. These claims come whether or not the Secretary of State is a named uh, complainant or not, a named uh, person or not. What it simply does is it shifts the burden of defending against them onto uh, county uh, election officials or county workers who more often not, than not don't have the resources of Secretary of State and quite frankly slows down the process. Uh, one thing, I, and one reason, so these things are have been coming and, and whether or not the Secretary of State, we have jurisdiction of Secretary of State uh, or not, isn't gonna stop these sort of things from coming. It's just a matter of who, who's gonna bear the burden uh, principally of defending against them. And so it's not a matter of whether whether you ally with this group or that group. It's a matter of what's the best way for this for the 
for the for the state election board to adjudicate these claims and and get a resolution so that folks can can see that. And and I want to also emphasize that most of these situations uh, that we deal with, for instance, that may touch on the Secretary of State Board, have nothing to do with the, the fraud claims of 2020. A lot of them have, you know, for instance, we had a claim last last week involving a small county in South Georgia in which there was a write-in campaign and there was a lot of confusion about how the the candidate was to collect the signatures and how but, the supervisor was but, but, to uh, hold on. Let me, but I, but I Edward, this a, was about a fraud claim. No, no, no. But, but, it, no, but th- this is my point. By virtue of us not having, and a lot of the, the defense was, well, the Secretary of State's office told us to do X. Yeah. It'd be easier for us if we had the Secretary of State's office in the room. And it, now, yeah. Well, I, I want to read you this from Jordan Fuchs, who is the deputy Secretary of State to, to Brad Raffensperger, because well, she says, this, yeah, and she says this is not just about 2020. This is also about 2024. Here's her quote. The election wasn't stolen and our office is surprised to see particular members of the state election board laying the foundation to discredit the next election. So her concern here is obviously that this will feed and fuel conspiracy theories going forward. And the focus is on, on 2020 and 2024. Um, do you hear her concerns? Do you worry that, by by voting to launch or by voting to uh, give fuel to these concerns about the 2020 election, that you also give fuel to concerns about the upcoming vote. I think what I'm trying to do is lay the foundation so that we can settle these claims. And by having my friends, and keep in mind, I have enormous respect for Jordan Fuchs. I think she is absolutely one of the one of a, a great public servant and i think there are a lot of other great public servants in the secretary of state's office but by trying to to stand behind uh claims of immunity from uh from us being able to hear complaints only fuels uh those conspiracists out there who claim well you know you know by virtue of us not being by virtue of claims not being able to be heard about them you know, therefore, they're they're operating in the in in a back room doing nefarious things. Uh, so I, while I, I and and I cannot express enough my my respect for Jordan, uh, as well as multiple other ones. But I think just the opposite by given the fact that we already have to take up these claims, they're going to be against someone else. Let's go ahead and have all the possible entities in the room and let's dispose of them. Greg, so. And so that there's an open, you know, you know, what's what's the old line? Uh, you know, uh, uh, sunshine is the greatest. Best yeah, same thing. yeah. Oh, one, one follow up then, um, Ed, would the state election board, I know this is a hypothetical, but would the state election board also seek the authority to investigate the lieutenant governor's actions in 2020? He's, of course, now being investigated for potential criminal charges for his role as a as an elector for a Republican Party and other issues. Well, that's a different issue, and uh, that's a hypothetical dealing with his role in an election, and we deal with that when we, if it was to be filed. I mean, we have authority over a, a large number of people and a large number of issues. Um, I'm not sure if we would have authority on that kind of issue or not. Rose, um, uh, plus, me- I would also add that our authority usually is to direct something to prosecutors. Uh, that's already been directed to prosecutors. All right. Uh, Edward, uh, you're going to stay with us and continue uh, with us on uh, other uh, topics we're going to look at. Uh, 
today. I think there are still a number of questions that are going to be raised about how the election board handled this issue. We should point out that the deadlock, the 2-2 vote in which, again, you voted in favor of this ongoing investigation, uh, means that it moves now to the General Assembly because the board is asking the General Assembly to decide whether you, in fact, do have the authority to take up issues uh, of, of this uh, nature, um, which, I, well, we're going to let that go for the time being. We'll see how the General Assembly handles that, if It'll it does at all, in the upcoming session. Rose Scott, um, while we've got you here, I'm really glad to give you an opportunity to talk to us a little bit about the Atlanta Police Training Center, which, by the way, is another issue Edward Lindsay is very uh, mm-hmm. interested in. Um I think with the exception of Riley Bunch over at our place at the AJC, there are a few people who've stayed on top of this issue quite the way you have. And I'm wondering, just give us your general sense right now of where the landscape is in terms of the training center, the referendum, the opposition, how the mayor's doing on this. You've interviewed him about it. Really just like to hear your thoughts in general on this. You want the landscape, Bill? I want the landscape, Rose. <laughs> well, first of all, let me say this. We're not the only uh, media outlet, I think, that's been doing a, a fair uh, job in covering this. Uh, I think that the Atlanta Press Collective, I think Capital B, uh, I think you all, t- to a certain extent. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think a, a lot of the news outlets have, have done a, a pretty good job of covering this. It is very unique and complex, that's for sure. Um, we here at Closer Look, uh, in terms of what we've been doing, because we have the platform to take a deeper dive into an, an issue, you know, take a little bit further in terms of examination analysis. But the biggest metric that we want to make sure in, in covering this is that we invite the community to come on. Uh, it's not about whether Rose Scott wants it or that's, that's nobody's business. And that's not what I'm here for. What we're here for is to bring different views together. And what we're also here to do is to make sure that the process is fair in terms of a democratic process, small d, and all of this. That's what I think we've been trying to do. Uh, People push back and and they get mad uh, because they didn't like a question. And as I say all the time, you know, you can be mad, but was the question fair? Uh, And so when we started covering this like everybody else, we wanted to be fair. And we tried to invite different people on. Now, some folks declined. That's your prerogative to decline. But when you decline, don't send me an email. I didn't like that question you asked that person. Well, you should have came on the show. You know what I'm saying? So that's that's kind of where I, I hope my leadership with, with our team is what we've been doing. I, and I, I think we've done a pretty good job with that. I think WABE has done a, job with a, pretty, a very good job with that as well. So when you talk about the landscape of where we are, look, the bottom line is <clears throat> there is a facility that is proposed it's going to be built. There is a large majority of folks in the community, around the community, that don't want it. There are folks that do want it. For me, in Closer Look, we want to know, has this process been fair? And also unraveling and, and examining maybe where there have been some potential missteps or some transparency issues. That's all we're doing. Um, Greg, it, it's interesting to hear Rose talk about has the process been fair 
uh, because obviously many of the opponents of the police training center would say it's not fair yet because we want a referendum to give the public the chance to weigh in on whether the training center should be built. It's already substantially built as it is. But in fact, the city council, which is a democratic body which represents the people of Atlanta, if you are on the pro side of the training center, you'd say, well, yes, it was fair because the representatives of the people of the city voted in favor of this. Yeah, and we've also seen legislative votes um, in, in favor of the uh, a Republican-backed resolution that, that was in favor of the Atlanta Public Safety Project. But Rose, you know, talking about the legislature, and one of the big things I'm watching is if there's going to be a Republican-led effort to uh, restrict referendums on local issues, because we saw from the Camden County Georgia Supreme Court Mm -hmm. ruling earlier this year, it did open the door for a wave of new referenda on issues, you know, ranging from big projects like this one to even small things as maybe as minute as millage rate increases. It's always interesting. It's been interesting to me and and, uh, Bill's been, because Bill's older, which I'm happy about. Uh, (laughs) It's always been interesting to me uh, with certain, when local becomes local, uh, when state when state doesn't want to have anything to do yeah. with it, and then when there seems to be uh, perhaps some benefit or some political benefit, then state weighs in. Uh, Bill and Greg, you may know. Remember, there was a time when the state legislature didn't even want to have anything to do with MARTA. Mm-hmm. They didn't want to touch MARTA, uh, you know, and, and that has changed. And and they didn't want to have anything to do with the airport, but now that's changed. And so I think when you when you look at it from the viewpoint of of residents of community. What, what is their role in all of this? You know, I just did an interview, which, which is going to air tomorrow, with the BBC professor. Uh, he's a lecturer, and it talked about the democracy, you know, and, and the role of the people. And he talked about people electing the government and the role of the government. Uh, and so it's just always been interesting to me where, where the line stops for the community. Now, granted, there are processes in place, and... I think what's been overlooked with this public safety training center, in my opinion, is that there's been so much from one side about we need police and fire training. Of course, I don't want a fireman or fire people to show up at my house on fire and they go, I don't know what to do. You know, yes, we want law enforcement to be trained. I think everybody wants that. You want. I think that has been the glaring message, but also from one side, but also overlooking the environmental uh, impact on a community. And a community says, we would prefer this not be here. Where is the weight in that message from a community? Where is the weight in 14 hours, 17 hours of public comment? Where is the weight when you know that there is a divided city council? That's what I'm talking about. Edward, jump in, because I know this is an issue of some significance to you as well. Yeah, uh, it, it is an issue that's that's very, as a resident of the city of Atlanta, uh, who uh, who has seen the the uptick uh, in in violence that took place uh, during the pandemic period, and and is very concerned to, to to do what we can to help help our community, including law enforcement, bring those numbers back down so that everyone from Buckhead to Bankhead uh, feels safe in our communities. Uh, and and I do believe that this uh, center uh, is is critically important to our community in terms of not just training our people, but getting first class folks to uh, want to join our police force rather than some other police force. 
Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I am on record as strongly favoring it and, and believing that it is critically necessary. I think there's a lot of false information or maybe uh, misunderstanding that they think that they're training people to uh, to basically use force to to protect our community. When in fact, a, a large part of training, if if you talk to the folks who actually do the training, uh, is is to teach our, our law enforcement how to reduce the temperature in a situation uh, rather than to uh, to have to apply force. And, and that takes a lot of training. Um, you know, the fact of the matter is this has been thoroughly discussed, as Rose intimated. Uh, you know, there were hours of testimony. Uh, about this. So, I mean, th there isn't a question as to whether or not the issue was fully uh, discussed on both sides uh, in terms of whether or not this was something that, that was was imported enough before the city council uh, cast the very difficult vote. But uh, this has buy-in from uh, all corners of, of our city and is very bipartisan, as you pointed out. While a majority of the city council are Democrats, there's a fair number uh, folks who are Republicans and 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 was about partisan folks who supported that. Rose, so I, I think it's time for us to move forward. I mean, that that's my main thing. Well, uh, you know. Ed, and you know, because let's be really clear too. This is is and, and folks may not want to hear, it, but this is about politics too. Be very clear about that. You 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 have been a lawmaker. You know that. And again, I think messaging on both sides has been stretched and massaged to get their point across. Uh, I, I think there have been some missteps on both sides in terms of messaging, in terms of why, why not, why they want it or why they don't want it. And that I think is, is what has been a big problem in all of this as well. You know, Greg, we got to get to a break, but, and, and, and this is a conversation I wish we had another hour for, <clears throat> but um, we've said on the show repeatedly what Rose just said, the miscommunication or the inability of leaders of this effort to communicate in a in a clear, concise way what this training center is all about has been a problem from the very start. And on the other side of it, the fact that there are those who have opposed it and taken up violence in to show their opposition has been just as destructive to any ability to come to some agreement about this center. And I think Rose is 100% right. 100% right about her comments about all politics local until they're not. <laughs> We've seen uh, efforts by rural Republicans to take more control of the Atlanta airport. Uh, last this, this past year, to cleave Atlanta's city into two and to create a new city of Buckhead, this was a, an effort almost exclusively by Republicans from outside Atlanta city limits. And now with this resolution in, in support of of, of the Public Safety Training Center, which passed overwhelmingly, was still brought by rural Republicans. Well, and look at the prosecutor, the, 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 the committee or whatever they wanted to have to remove prosecutors. I mean, come on. Come on, y'all. <laughs> the DA Oversight Committee. Uh, this is, uh, look, we are already, oh, about six minutes late for getting to uh, the first break of our show. Um, and that's because it's... It's okay. I, I roll over breaks all the time, Bill. I, I do too, Rose. That's another thing we have in common. What happens I, I, when your name is on the show? I know you got to run and get set for your show today. <laughs> I hope you'll come back and be with us again. You sure they're going to let you have me back? Oh, absolutely. But tell <laughs> us real quick, real, real quick, what's on Closer Look? 
today. Uh, so I'm doing a segment, a wonderful segment with the Georgia Association of Black Women Attorneys, uh, Gabois, uh, about getting their viewpoints on some legal issues of the year and what's uh, coming up. And then also we're going to talk about uh, facial recognition technology Ooh. and how it goes wrong, getting black folks and black and brown people falsely arrested. Um, so what Rose we do. Scott, we'll look forward to a closer look. Natalie and Matt, you better get us to a break fast. We'll be back in a minute. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach. An air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has a special offer for Politically Georgia podcast listeners. If you subscribe today, you can get three months of unlimited digital access for just 99 cents. That's all our sports coverage, politics, breaking news, investigations, food and dining, and so much more on AJC.com. Plus, you'll have access to our e-paper and our many newsletters. So join our community by going to AJC.com slash start. That's AJC.com slash start. So you'll always know what's really going on. I'm Bill Nygut. Greg Bluestein is with me. We were thrilled to have Rose Scott with us. She's a trip. I love talking to Rose. That was a lot of fun. <laughs> All right, let's move into another important story. You were in federal court yesterday for the hearing at which um, Judge Jones heard from both sides about whether or not the maps that he ordered redrawn for legislative districts and U.S. House districts complied with his requirement that they um, increase black voting power, one additional seat. Uh, with a black majority in the U.S. House, one district, and uh, seven in the legislature. Give us a sense of how that uh, hearing unfolded and some of the things that Judge Jones did that kind of took people by surprise. Yeah. Okay, let me set the scene. Yep. 19th floor of the federal courthouse, no phones allowed, no laptops allowed, no no electronic communications devices allowed. Um, and uh, the Judge Jones walks in and, as you mentioned, open with this surprise. Um he he gave an opening statement essentially to 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 about thirty lawyers in the room from representing different factions and different plaintiffs and state and other groups, um, essentially saying that uh, you know we've been a lot of talk a lot of focus has been on what happened to Congresswoman Lucy McBath's district mm-hmm. for the second time in two years it's been carved up redrawn her majority minority district in the suburbs of Atlanta um, has been carved up four different ways it's now. Uh, the district that she once represented is now majority white, had been majority minority. And he told the plaintiffs and the challengers that he wants to keep the scope of this case on the impact the maps had on black Georgians. With such a tight deadline, he doesn't plan to rule on any claims against other minority groups. So Hispanic, Latino voters, Asian American voters who live particularly in Lucy Midbass District in the 7th District in Gwinnett County, um, He's basically said there's not enough time to take up those claims. It took 22 months. <clears throat> it took him almost two years for him to render a, a verdict, a ruling on the previous maps that we just got in October. So he said with January looming, the deadline's either January 16th or January 29th, depending on who you ask. But with a January deadline looming, he said there's just not enough time for him to go deeper into new claims uh, involving minority voters. He wants to keep it about majority black districts. And that was seen as a blow to the challengers of this map. 
Yeah, um, Edward Lindsay uh, remains with us. Edward, I, I said on the show the other day that so-called minority opportunity districts, which the seventh is, being a majority based on uh, Hispanic, Asian, and Black voters, um, was kind of a whole new concept uh, for many of us. We hadn't thought talked much about opportunity districts for minorities. And I guess the question becomes now, if Judge Jones only wants to talk about black majority districts, the question is, what does that say about the displacement of Lucy McBath from that that opportunity district? Well, first off, you know, sometimes you got to deal with the reality of time. Uh, and, and that's what Judge Jones was simply having to deal with. Uh, he, he didn't make an adjudication in terms of whether or not those claims were correct or not, but simply going, guys, <laughs> I'm not going to start on whole new claims here. Uh, I've got an existing lawsuit. I got existing claims. We've got uh, primaries coming up and we've got um, a general election in November. And, you know, and I've got to deal with this issue. If we want to, if somebody else wants me to look at these other issues, we're going to have to deal with it down the road. And and that's just the judicial process. Uh, and, and I know that's frustrating to some people, but the fact of the matter is, um, you know, you, you have two choices here. You could open up this whole thing. Uh, go ahead, open up this whole thing and then uh, not have any decision on anything. Uh, for another year or so, not till the 26th election, would you then have a decision? Or you could have some finality, at least regarding the African-American uh, districts now, and then uh, take a look at these additional claims down the road. Um, you know, uh, so, so, so that was the quandary that Judge Jones was in. Okay, but uh, and I, frankly, the quandary that the state is in too, because the state needs finality, and and the candidates need finality, in in terms of who's going to vote for what. Okay, and so there's so, always confusion with redistricting. Sorry, I'm, I I'm, no, no, I'm sorry to interrupt, but okay, so Greg, help us un understand this then. The, the judge in the congressional <laughs> map, the judge said, "I want one additional black majority district." Right. Mm -hmm. Um. What the 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 argument that the, uh, uh, the opponents of the new maps say is, well, they didn't create one additional black district. What they did was they moved M Lucy McBath district. Uh, it, that's no longer a majority mm -hmm. minority district. Uh, so all they've done is move a district to the west without actually adding a district. But on the basis of what Judge Jones said about these so-called opportunity districts, that takes that argument off the table. That's why it was a blow to the yeah. challengers. Look, they look. The, the challengers say that Republicans redrew the district lines without changing the balance of power and complying with the ruling. The state says no. We we comply with the. You said additional black majority black district, and we're let's talk about the Congress in West Metro Atlanta. We did that. Um, when it comes to the legislative district, you said uh, seven new majority black districts. We we drew those. Uh, so without the majority minority, co they call them opportunity coalition districts. I know it's a strange phrase, but without those in the debate, it, this could this could be a tough, uh, tough uphill legal battle for the challengers. Who knows what the what the judge will end up ruling. But, Bill, this is where it gets so confusing, but also so important, because not only do candidates not know what they're going to do, who what districts they represent, but voters don't yeah. know. Hundreds of thousands of voters right now in Metro Atlanta and, 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 and some in Macon as well aren't clear who their representatives for Congress, for the state Senate, and for the state House are. And the challengers are asking 
for a special master to quickly redraw the map. We know it could be done pretty quickly. It could be done in a couple of days with today's sophisticated software, but the judge still needs time to make this ruling. And there is a, a deadline of mid to late January because it's not just as easy as pressing a button for the state election workers. They've got to go and move tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of voters to different districts and cross-check them to make sure that they're not disenfranchised. Yeah, you know, Edward, I think what um, Greg just talked about is where the rubber really hits the road here. Um, we, Greg and I were talking before the show today about just how difficult it is somehow and to get into the weeds on a radio program or even TV program, a news program, about all drawing, drawing all these lines and, you know, District 47 becomes dish. All of that is very tricky. But when it comes right down to it, what this is really about, what happens when you and I go to the polls and don't recognize the names on the ballot? That's where redistricting suddenly hits us in a very real way. Welcome to the the issues faced by the state election board. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, and and as difficult as that is, here's an even worse scenario. You go to the polls and you get a ballot. And you actually do know what district you're in and who your new person is. And they're not on the ballot because some mistake was made uh, down, you know, by some uh, individual. Not necessarily, not not because of, of, of nefarious intent, but because of the confusion and the rush trying to get things right. You suddenly are looking at people going, well, you know, these aren't my representatives. These aren't. These aren't my district. And unfortunately, we see that happening. And so that's why it is so important as early as possible to get this done. And, you know, a lot of what my my work is with the state election board is to hear from the the local people and the secretary of state's office in terms of the practical difficulties of of them doing their job. You know, that's a really good point. Giving the election board uh, workers a chance to make sure they get the ballots right. What, did, what happened with the legislative districts yesterday? How were those arguments played out? Yeah, the, the bulk of the arguments focused on the state Senate districts, not the state House districts. Um, there, there is a sort of behind-the-scenes um, confidence from, from the Georgia side of the ledger that, that the state House districts will be held up in court, will be upheld in court, because in part because they also exacted some uh, price from Republicans. There's two Republican incumbents who were drawn together along with six Democratic House incumbents. The state Senate districts were were looked at as more questionable in, in part because um, state, state Senators Elena Parent, Jason Estevez's districts were stretched so far. They were already, they're already Democratic-leaning districts, but they were stretched so far to make the majority uh, black districts, again, while preserving Republican incumbents in office. So really the balance of power isn't going to change at all. And that's what state attorneys say is, Hey, we, we followed your, 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 your ruling. Democrats are just upset because it won't change the, 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 the uh, overall makeup of, of the state political spectrum. So um, we expect that judge Jones, we're going to hear from him as quickly as possible. But what do you think that means again? Uh, he says very soon. And again, it took him almost two years to, and it was a 500 plus page ruling. So it was a very in-depth ruling that ended up striking down the previous version of maps. He says very soon, and he knows that the deadline is, is really quick. Um, so I could expect them within the next few weeks. You know, Edward, um, certainly judge Jones, like, uh, any, uh, uh, 
jurist of, of any real uh, integrity doesn't talk about the cases he's involved with in a pers- on a personal basis. But I happen to know Judge Jones and did, in fact, have lunch with him uh, during this summer. And he wasn't going to tell me anything about any number of cases he's involved with. But he certainly made it clear that coming up with an order, a 500-page order <laughs> like this, I didn't know it was going to be 500 pages. It's been one of the most difficult challenges of his career. And now he's got to figure out how it works out uh, in the way the maps have actually been redrawn. Absolutely. Uh, you know, uh, any of us who've ever tried to, you know, uh, I've, I've written a lot of briefs. And fortunately, fortunately, what I like is that judges restrict the number of pages that I can I can write in my briefs. <laughs> no 500 page. And, uh, no, I've never had a judge willing to do, do me 500 pages. Uh, <laughs> and it's, it's difficult. And, uh, and a lot of times it doesn't provide clarity. I had a case in which the, the trial judge found for me with one page, the Supreme Court ruled with me on 96 pages. And we understood the one page from the trial judge a lot more than we understood the 96 from the Supreme Court. Bill, there was a striking moment in that hearing involving Judge Jones. We won't see written about because it was kind of a just interesting uh, thing that happened, which was he made a joke kind of at the very beginning of the hearing that that we were all here to, you know, he just joked about the, the crowd being there to entertain, right? Like, it was just an offhanded comment. No one really took offense to it. But then he went later on, he apologized for that and said, look, I didn't mean to sound off-putting by saying that people are here to entertain me. I respect the role of the public who is here. I respect the role of the lawyers. Anything single that I respect the role of the journalists here who, who have to go and, and, and discern what is being said over a six hour hearing to, to an audience that, with a limited attention span. So it was very nice for, for him to say that. I, that sounds so much like Judge Jones, who uh, really is a, uh, a, a, a very, very talented and uh, fair-minded jurist. All right, let's do this. Let's go to our final break of the show right now. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces, as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Bill Nygut. Twice daily, delivered straight to your email, you can receive the AJC's Politically Georgia newsletter. It'll help you stay on top of all the important news scoops and exclusives from me and the rest of the AJC's political team. Just go to AJC.com newsletters and sign up today. That's AJC.com newsletters. Edward Lindsay and Greg Bluestein still with us for today's Politically Georgia. Very quickly, Natalie Mendenhall says to me all the time, please promote the listener mailbag. You can ask us questions about politics that you'd like answered. Simply call 404-526-2527. Leave your question. Don't forget to give us your name because otherwise we're going to make up a really crazy name uh, for you. But we'd love to hear from you. All right, um, Greg, uh, real quickly, uh, as you know, Anthony Michael Christ was on our show, the constitutional law professor, and um, we asked him about 
in, in light of the Colorado Supreme Court ruling making uh, uh, Donald Trump ineligible for the ballot for, for his uh, part in the insurrection, uh, there are people who wondered whether, in fact, uh, the, the suit against Burt Jones, who was a fake elector in Georgia, the one that would try to disqualify him from uh, uh, remaining in office, uh, had any chance of moving forward. Anthony said not a chance, but there are people who think he's wrong. Yeah, including the the, the, the plaintiffs in this in this case who who do believe they have a chance. Look, uh, it's it's widely expected to be rejected by the judge down in Butts County Superior Court, who said in in a, doing the court hearing earlier this week it was far fetched, right? But that's never been the goal. The goal has always been to get this case to the Georgia Supreme Court. The attorney handling this petition. Uh, aims to do just that. He thinks that it will be struck down. It will be dismissed, I should say, by the Butts County judge uh, in middle Georgia in Burt Jones's home district, but that eventually it will force the Georgia Supreme Court to take up this question. And it could, you know, it's still a long shot. It is still a, a, a definite long shot. And Colorado Supreme Court's ruling doesn't hold sway, but it could be something he sure. at least invokes. In right, this. right, exactly. It's not a question of whether the Colorado Supreme Court has jurisdiction here but it sets the stage for further action, as it does, Edward. We should point out there are almost, I think, tw almost 20 states in which there is uh, legal action that would try to keep Donald Trump off the ballot um, for insurrectionist reasons. But once again, the real test is going to come when it goes to the United States Supreme Court, right? That's correct. I mean, um, you know, particularly when if we end up with different rulings in different states. And so we have a, a total confusion. Um, I happen to be in the Chris Christie camp on this issue. He said, he said the best thing for America is to decide this issue at the ballot box uh, rather than uh, look to have the courts try to do it. Um, that's going to be very ugly, but end up being the courts. Okay. Uh, certainly, certainly on the criminal matters, let, let the criminal system proceed, let the trials proceed, let jurors make the decision in terms of, of culpability on the criminal side, but let folks on the ballot box decide who they want their leaders to be. All right. Um, we'll watch that unfold. Uh, Greg, at the very top of this question, I asked a question based on an article that you wrote, which I read. And the question was, when is a Republican not a Republican in Georgia. <laughs> Isn't that the big debate the Republican Party has been having um, for years now, but specifically now, right? There are two counties in Northwest Georgia, um, Pickens County and Chattooga County, where the local Republican committees have passed resolutions that basically gives the local officials the final say on who can qualify to run as a Republican. And it doesn't seem like that big of a change, but it's a, it, it is an enormous change um, because this would give local officials, local party activists, the final say on who can run with an R next to their name. And uh, there's, there, there isn't, you know, a, a big vetting test or anything like that in the process. Now, basically now to qualify as a Republican, you have to sign an oath in many counties and you've got to pay a fee and you can, anyone who wants to run as a Republican can, can essentially run as a Republican. There might be some vagaries in, in different counties, but that's the way it typically goes, where now you'll, there'll be a, a panel of five people in Chattooga County, up about 30 people in Pickens County, who will vet each candidate uh, who wants to run as a Republican. And the proponents of this say, you know, these are people who affect the policies who change your lives. Shouldn't it be more uh, uh, intensive a vetting process than, say, you know, 
Shouldn't this be a basically a job application process, especially when you have counties where the Republican primary basically settles who the general okay, but win. so what does that mean? That in these two counties, there's going to be a checklist. It's it, it. Here are the here's the litmus test for determining whether you are in fact a Republican. You are completely pro-life. You don't believe a woman should have the right uh, to choose unless her life is at stake. It's just as an example. Um, I you believe the border should be completely closed. So that, I mean. And that's what is coming up as an example. You're right. Um, they're talking about abortion rights and where you stand on taxes and big government and those types of issues. And the, and the concern that many local Republicans have, have brought up to me, and these are, these are people who won't get challenged. These are people who have been in office who have very conservative track records, but they worry that it's disenfranchising voters by not giving them the choice to decide who their nominees for, for office will be and, and putting it instead into the hands of a very few Local activists. Yes. Yeah, so, Edward, I think of two things in terms of this. Wait, let me ask the question. First of all, we already know that gerrymandering has reduced the opportunity for you to vote for someone necessarily of your own party in a Republican-controlled state. That means that your choice is usually a Republican. Um, but now, we used to think of the term rhino as simply a slur that very, very conservative Republicans hurled at Republicans who were not as conservative as they were. Now, Rhino is going to become, in fact, a way in which you determine who gets on the ballot and who doesn't in those two counties. Welcome to the, the, the uh, uh, backroom politics. But make no mistake, uh, this is the creation of party bosses in these counties. Uh, what you're talking about is removing the openness of primaries, uh, and the participation of people in primaries in Georgia has a great primary system in which everyone can vote. You can vote in either primary. And they're taking that away from voters and they're turning it over to uh, party bosses in a back room deciding who is or is not worthy of being on a ballot. I cannot think of anything uh, worse in terms of good government. And quite frankly, I can't think of anything more dangerous for a political party uh, than to be governed in that way. And I would tell folks that want to go down that path, what, you know, you, you're walking down the path to becoming a, a, a obsolete and a party in the minority. Uh, and it's dangerous for either party uh, to participate in this. And in this particular case, it's two county parties uh uh, Republican parties. But, you know, we've seen some of this nonsense on both sides of the political aisle. Uh, we had a, a y'all, Democrats had a candidate for, uh, for to, to head the Department of Education in Georgia, which some Democrats refused to back her because she wasn't sufficiently a Democrat, even though the party uh, and the uh, voters in the Democratic Party uh, had uh, had nominated. And the difference is she was still on the ballot, right? Yeah. Um, she was still on the ballot. Yeah. And you're right. You're right. Yeah. No, but I'm simply saying both. Sure. This is even one step worse. Yeah. That was bad. Welcome to something even worse because this is, seriously, this is this is creation of party bosses making yeah. decisions rather than the votes. Yeah, you're and right. Bill, if, if you look back to this summer, there was a push by ultra conservatives, by far right factions, to make this a standard of the state ballot too, basically to let the Republican Party's delegates in Georgia, that's about 1,500 or so people, have the final say in who should qualify to run for governor, who should qualify to run for statewide offices. And it was seen 
and I think accurately seen as a way to punish Governor Kemp, Secretary of State Raffensperger, Attorney General Chris Carr, anyone who is seen as standing up to Donald Trump, anyone who is seen as not on the, the pro-Trump MAGA train, uh, as a way for the delegates to block them from, or people like that, from running in future elections. And it was it was blocked by this unique coalition, not just of mainstream Republicans, like I'd probably put Ed Lindsay in that category, but also by other far-right activists who said the exact same thing Ed is, which is, is giving too much power to too few people and that could be used against Republicans down the road, you know, if more mainstream people get take charge of the party. Well, all right, you're talking to the guy who grew up in Mayor Richard J. Daley, Chicago. I know a bit about <laughs> a little bit party, of party bosses, bosses and how uh, iron-fisted the control of a small minority of people in one case, in this case, one man, Richard J. Daley, can be. And very quickly, because we're out of time, um, what does the Republican Party is it losing its future over things like this? Well, let me put it this way. You know, we are in a a difficult period. And the question is, what a, what's the Republican Party going to look like at the end of this tunnel? Uh, once the era of Trump has passed and once we get back to the issues of, of in terms of conservative politics and, and governing politics. And so it's it's uncertain. Right. Um, we'll just have to see. Ed, Edward Lindsay, you get the last word on today's Politically Georgia. Thank you so much uh, for being with us today. Greg Bluestein, uh, you're off tomorrow. I won't see you again until after the new year. And I just wish for both of us a great 2024 as we look forward to an amazing election year. A great and a busy 2024. Yeah. I don't think we have to worry about that. Exactly. All right. Thanks so much for spending time with us today on Politically Georgia. Remember that in addition to the podcast, you can also hear Politically Georgia live on 90.1 WABE on weekdays at 10 a.m. And of course, we'd love to have you continue to follow us on your podcast app and hear new episodes every afternoon. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review and share Politically Georgia with a friend. Join us again for a new Politically Georgia on the air or on your podcast platform tomorrow. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop.